So we've been in this resurrection stories uh, series, and I want to make something clear. I think Ross talked about this last week. Uh, he mentioned it very briefly, but a resurrection story and a salvation story are a little different, right? A salvation story is, I was, I was separated from God by sin, and I had not received Jesus. I had not received all that he had done for me in my life. And it's that moment when I said yes, and I turned away from sin, and I turned my face towards God, and I said, not my will, but yours be done. I want to be in your family. I want to live with you forever. That's a salvation story. And we have, you know, we have one of those, maybe two of those for most believers, right? A resurrection story is different. You can have several resurrection stories in your walk with the Lord. Because a resurrection story is when something that was dead is coming back to life. It could be a dream that you had, that you had just given up on. You know you're, you're in the family of God. You're, you're his child. You know what he has planned for you, but you've lost sight of it or you've lost that hold on it. You've lost the confidence that it can happen and something has just died. But then you meet God. Maybe it's through another person. Maybe it's through a circumstance. Maybe it's through the word. Maybe he just speaks to you directly and all of a sudden your perspective changes and instead of death, instead of the, the old thing passing away, you realize, oh, that, God never said that was over. And so I'm going to pick it back up again because if he didn't say it's over, then it's still in play. It's still active. It's still something that's meant for me. And today, what I want to do is I want to sort of cap this off by encouraging all of us to open up with our stories You've got a resurrection story. You have something that God did in your life. Maybe something he's doing right now in your life where something was given up as lost, but he told you, no, 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 wake up to it because it's still in play. It's still active. It is still yours. And it gives you drive. It gives you hope. That's really what we're talking about. A resurrection story is when you were bereft of hope and you have an encounter with Jesus and all of a sudden hope is alive again and everything is possible. That's a resurrection story. God is writing a story in you. And his hope, his hope, is that that story he's writing in you is something that you would tell to others. He's not doing things in you. This sounds mean, I know. But your walk with God is not just about you. It's about everybody that you come in contact with. Everybody, more specifically, everybody that he guides into your path. We come in contact with a lot of people, but some of them are people that God specifically guided into our path. And we have to be willing and ready to release what he's put in us so that it can impact someone else. And that's what we're talking about today. Romans 10, 14 says, but how can they call on him if they have not put their trust in him? And how can they put their trust in him if they have not heard of him? And how can they hear of him unless someone tells them that someone is you. You could put your name in there. How can they hear of him unless Darren tells them? How can they hear of him unless Ben tells him? I'm calling out my son because it's fun. How can they hear of him unless, insert your name there, tells them? But Jesus himself talked about how important it is for us to freely share the good news of the kingdom. 
and how when we share the good news, it actually has a vital role in building up the earth. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It can be really uncomfortable for us sometimes to just open up and freely just talk about God. God intended for the entirety of our lives both our words and our actions, to be vessels that he could minister to other people with. So the things that we say, the way that we live our lives, the things that we do, the things that, you know, the way, the way that we view the world and the way that we express that view, these are all ways that God wants to use us to minister life. Not to force anybody into anything, but to reveal an option, to reveal a path that you can take. It's why Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16, we've, we've read this a lot during this series, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So always be ready. Always be prepared to give an answer. There's two kind of key phrases in here that I want to hit on really quickly. First is that last phrase there, with gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. Have you ever had somebody give you the, uh, the reason for the hope they have and it didn't come across respectfully or gently? Great intentions, but uh, lacking gentleness and respect. And I think it's important to remember here, 1 John 4, 17 says, in this world, we are like Jesus. As he is, so are we to be in this world, right? And Jesus, I don't know about you, but Jesus treated me with gentleness and respect. Romans 2.4, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Now, um, we, can, we can also come to God out of, you know, fire and brimstone, you know, are you 100% sure that you're not going to go to hell kind of stuff? That is a way that many of us have come to know God. We've started down that road. But for me, that road always led to me looking back over my shoulder. There's a fear and an awe that we need to have of the Lord. He is God. He is God and I am not. And there's a fear of the Lord that comes along with that revelation. But I'm talking about earthly fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of, uh, well, if you don't do this, then this bad thing is going to happen to you. That's an earthly fear, and I don't want to give in to that. I want to be drawn to God through gentleness, through respect, through kindness, because that is how Jesus treated me, not forcing or demanding or shaming, not trying to convert people against their will, but I want us to work with God and allow the Holy Spirit to work through us. So gentleness and respect. The other part of 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 that I think is important is to everyone who asks. I think this is why some conversations go bad sometimes, is because we're trying to provide answers to people who aren't asking the question. They're not asking the question. We're trying to tell them 30,000 foot... Have you, have you ever tried to get weeds out of your yard by pulling out the weeds individually? 
right? Depending on how big your yard is, it doesn't matter how big your yard is, it's the worst job. You, know, you could have a yard like this big and it's terrible. But one thing it does is it really, it puts you on level with your yard and you really understand the condition that it's in. You understand, you see those weeds for, you know, and, and you pull them up and you, you feel that pain. You get that soreness, right? Your, your, your hands start to ache after a yard full of pulling out weeds. It's very different than if you just do like the air raid. I'm going to just put some chemicals on this thing and they're all going to go. And I think sometimes we need to have more of a on the ground pulling out weeds mentality in our conversations than an air raid. I'm going to just crop dust this whole thing. I think... We need to remember that Jesus is a man acquainted with our griefs. We trust him because he knows everything we've gone through. He identified with us in our, in our transgression. He identified with us in our sufferings. And because he's been through it, I know I can trust him. I want to remember that when I'm busy trying to give people prescriptions for things that they're not asking. That's throwing out some weed killer just to see if it works. That's not personal interaction. That's not getting to know, getting to identify with what, what are you going through, getting to, to empathize. So there are a lot of people in this world. They are absolutely everywhere. Anywhere you go, look around, there's probably people there. But you may feel like there are so very few who ask about this. So what does it take to get them to ask about the hope you have? To, to invite people to ask those questions so that we can give them the reason for the hope we have. First of all, interaction. Hopefully this isn't a, a, this isn't a shocker, but the Great Commission requires that we actually get out there and meet people, not just stay right in here. I think there, for too many years, there are too many people in too many churches who have thought, well, once they come in here, I'll show them the love of God. But when they're out there, I mean, that's, that's up to the Lord. And the Lord said, that's up to you. I did my part. That's, that, that's yours. Every place that your foot shall travel, I've given you that land. If your foot only travels here, he's giving you this, but that still belongs to someone else. Every place your foot travels, I'll, I've given you that land. Matthew 28, 19, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And that requires that we get out there and get personal. That we get out there and we meet people. We get out there and we have conversations, not just bounce right by them looking down because we don't want to make eye contact because that's awkward. So interaction, it takes intention, intention to get people to ask about the hope that we have. We have to go into interactions determined to make other people feel seen and known and loved. We have to go into our interactions determining, settling in our hearts that whoever I'm talking to is a fearfully and wonderfully made creature. God intentionally made them. And so I'm going to be intentional about recognizing what he did in them when I'm speaking with them. Dale Carnegie in uh, How to, I think it's How to Win Friends and Influence People, um, said, uh, to be interesting, be interested. If you want to be interesting, if you want people to ask the questions about the hope you have, be interested. And you'll be surprised at how, much, how that opens people up. Now, Ernest Hemingway said it this way, though. He said, I drink to make other people more interesting. So we don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't even know how well that worked for Hemingway, if I'm honest. <laughs> so, oh, we, we went there. Um, so, uh, so interaction, intention. Very last thing, how do we get people to ask the questions? Empathy. Empathy. 
You're going out, you're meeting people. You're choosing to see them as fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, as Jesus did in a world that's consumed with self, it makes a difference when someone puts their own stuff aside just for a moment and instead cares about them. It builds trust and openness. Theodore Roosevelt said it this way, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. It seems trite, but it is so true. So we can be all well-prepared with answers, all that we want, but we also need to create situations and environments where people can ask the questions. And so what we're really talking about here today is two of the key ways that we end up sharing our story, right? The first one is presentation. Presentation. This is what I'm doing here today. Presentation. Uh, where we have something that we want to share. I have a story today that I'm telling to you. It's this message. And you're all sitting and you're gathered and you're listening to varying degrees. You're listening this morning. And, and hopefully, I'm sharing it well enough that it's engaging. I'm sharing it well enough that you want to listen and that you'll go away with something after it's done. That's presentation. That is fine. And Jesus did it, right? Sermon on the Mount is presentation. That's pretty effective. Um, but, uh, but it requires a couple things, and it has a couple of drawbacks. First of all, it requires that whoever's doing the speaking is prepared, is ready, is practiced, so that it makes it interesting and engaging. If this isn't interesting or engaging, by the way, don't tell me, because that'll be sad. Uh, but it requires some preparation, study, and practice on the part of the speaker if you want it to be effective. It also requires that you, as a listener, have some stakes in the game already that you want to hear. The people who came to hear Jesus uh, speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, they were interested. They had heard about him, and they'd heard about his ministry and what his disciples were doing, and they were there to watch. They were, they were dialed in. And, and so they already had, had this buy-in. Jesus had that. But I got to tell you, I was a classroom teacher for 10 years, and you don't always get that. You don't always get I taught English, which is the class that everybody has to take right? That's the worst. If I had taught an elective, maybe people would have chosen to take it, but I taught English. And so, man, you want to you watch, you want to watch like a three-ring circus. It's trying to get a bunch of 17-year-olds to sit and analyze literature. So another thing that, uh, that the presentation model does is it establishes that there's an expert and everybody else is not an expert. And that's not what we're really going for. I don't know about you. I'm not an expert in following Jesus. I'm learning. I'm just moving through life and asking for advice whenever, I can, whenever I'm in need and open to correction and open to criticism because I don't have it all figured out. And, and I think we're all in that same boat. Sometimes we don't want to admit it. And we're further along than we were in the past, but we're not experts yet. But I think one of the drawbacks of a presentation is that you feel like, well, the person who's speaking must be an expert. And that's just... that's. Not always, not always true. So Jesus did that, but it's not the main thing that we see him doing in the Gospels. The main way that Jesus shared his story in the Gospels is through something that's a lot lower pressure, a lot easier to prepare for, and that is conversation. Conversation. So we're, we're concluding our Resurrection Stories uh, series by really just talking about talking with people, because that is how our story gets told. Conversation. Conversation is at the heart 
of the most powerful tool that God gave us as a, as a, as a people, and that is spoken communication. I mean, if the Tower of Babel is, is an, an explanation of that, I don't know what is. Like, they were all in the same language and all doing some things, and God said, wow, they communicate really well. Nothing will be impossible for them. And, then, and so he confused their language, you know, because they were trying to do some things that were not in his will, which they might have accomplished had he not done that. Uh, but, but it goes to show how important language is, how important communication is, right? We need to have conversations. We need to be open to listen and to hear what people are saying. And I'm talking about substantive conversation. I'm not talking about small talk. And I know... It's just the way of the world. We've had small talk already, right? You walk in, even in church, you walk into church, hey, how you doing? Good. How are you? Good. <laughs> and then you move on. It's like, wow, we really, really got to know each other there. That's pretty great. I know that today you're doing good. That's awesome. Wow. I feel like I know you. Um, there's, a, there's a University of Arizona study that... Uh, that they did some research. A lot of studies, I think, do research to prove stuff that we already knew anyway. Right? And so this is one of those. University of Arizona, they researched uh, for several months and did some studies to, to gauge substantive versus small talk conversations. And what they found was that substantive conversations, conversations in which you find out new information about the person that you're talking with, increase happiness and sense of well-being overall. And this is going to shock some of you guys. It's the same for extroverts and all you introverts. That's what they found. Even if it's not comfortable for you, it's still something that you need. Substantive conversation. Not, not hey, how you doing? Good. Good. Awesome. All right. How, how's the weekend looking? Good. We always say things are good. You never find out anything new. Uh, but substantive conversations where you leave that conversation and you know something new. You got new information. You got a new, uh, a new facet to this person that you thought you had all figured out before. That increases your sense of well-being, your happiness with life. Doesn't happen in small talk. In small talk, you leave, no more, you leave knowing no more than you knew when you come in. But it makes sense because by God's design, we're highly social creatures. And when we have these deeper conversations, when we actually find out new stuff, we get to share vulnerabilities. We get to establish trust. We get to partner with each other in our hopes and our, our fears. We get to, to, to partner with each other in our faith. We get to encourage one another, show gratitude, show love. So these substantive conversations are all based on questions and answers. Asking questions, answering. That's what conversation is. And so we're going to point this back to Jesus. Jesus uh, was kind of the master of asking questions. If you look through, and, and I saw a few different numbers, but all of them over 300. In the four Gospels, Jesus asked over 300 questions. Now, some of those people thought they were going to get an answer. And instead, he just asked them another question. Right, so Jesus asked over 300 questions. You know how many questions he was asked? He's a teacher, right? People are coming to him for knowledge. He asked 300 questions, but he was asked directly 183 questions in all four Gospels combined. 
right? This kind of, I was looking into a, a Harvard study, child psychologist Paul Harris, because 300 questions seems like a lot, you know, in, in just four books, like 300 questions, wow, that's a lot. But in case you think like 300 questions is a lot, children between the ages of two and five ask on average 40,000 questions. That's per day. That's just per day. And you multiply that with multiple kids, and you're like, oh my gosh. No wonder parents don't have time for anything else. Always answering questions, always answering questions, always answering questions. So bless you, moms, once again. Uh, But what we find, what we find is that by the age of 11, and you find this too, parents, and you find this too, uh, all our students who are getting to this age, like 11 and beyond, the number of questions that you ask plummets. It drops way down. Part of that is because you already asked like 143 billion questions up to then, so you got a lot of answers in here. But part of that is that we stop looking for information to come from others around us that we trust. And we start independent research. We start going to find the answers ourselves. And that's just the human condition. It's part of the reason why Jesus came. It's because we go to try to look for the answers ourselves. And sometimes that's fine. Sometimes that ends up taking us down the wrong path, right? Um, So we stop looking for answers in relationships with other people, and we start looking for answers independently. But Jesus was on to something here. Uh, Stuart Firestein, who wrote a book called Ignorance, How It Drives Science, he said this, one good question can give rise to several layers of answers. But answers, on the other hand, often end the process. What's the answer? Oh, it's this. Conversation's done. Sometimes it's time to just give the answer, but sometimes it's time to keep asking the questions, to keep the conversation going. So questions lead to conversations, which lead to opportunities to share the kingdom, going into the life of Jesus. Just four different scriptures. John 4, Jesus approaches a Samaritan woman at the well, and he says to her, will you give me a drink? Simple question. 22 verses later, she's telling other people that she just may have met the Messiah. A question that leads to a conversation that leads to talking about the kingdom. John 5, Jesus opens up a conversation with the lame man who's lying by the pool, and he says to him, do you want to get well? Seems like an obvious question, right? Jesus was not afraid to ask the obvious. Do you want to get well? After that conversation, the man is not only healed, but he's gone and he's telling other people about what happened to him, and he's talking about Jesus who heals. John 6 Jesus asks Philip, when all the people are approaching, he's about to, they're about to feed the 5,000, Jesus asks him, so where do you want to buy bread for all these people to eat? Rhetorical question, right? Where on earth? Philip even tells him, where on earth are we going to find, there's not enough bread around. Like, that's a really dumb question, Jesus. But... That question leads to a conversation which results in the disciples assisting Jesus in feeding the 5,000 with leftovers, and it leads people to recognize him as, quote, the prophet who has come into the world. It's simple questions that lead to conversations that lead to discussing the kingdom. In Luke 9, Jesus asked the disciples during prayer, simple question, hey, who do the crowds say that I am? Simple question. And they give him a lot of answers. And then he asks two follow-up questions, right? The most important of which is, yeah, but who do you say that I am? 
question, question, question. And what, that hap- what happens during that conversation is it helps Peter come to the life-altering revelation of who Jesus is because Jesus was willing to ask a question. So Jesus was ready and willing to share his story. And that gets me wanting to tie a bow onto the series with asking us, are we ready to share our story? It could be our salvation story, but are we ready to talk about those resurrection stories? Are we ready to share with people, if they ask, what Jesus is doing right now? How is he bringing things to life for me right now? What hope do I have right now? Are we ready to share those stories? And I'm not talking about making a presentation. If that helps, that's fine. But I think that we've reduced our storytelling in the church to thinking about it as a presentation. When we should be thinking about it as conversations. Things that we don't have to get an audience for. Walking out the gospel begins with the person right in front of you. It does. Being willing to go meet and talk and ask questions and then continue on the conversation. Second Peter 1.16 kind of speaks to this point. Peter said, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's what we're talking about here. As Peter said, I didn't come to tell you a story about Jesus. I came to tell you what happened in my life because I saw it. I'm not talking about something that I'm not familiar with. I'm not cleverly devising something so that it will lead to this reaction. I'm just telling you, here's what God did in my life. Peter had a lot of stories that he could have told about Jesus for sure. We have firsthand stories. We're eyewitnesses. God's done something in your life. God's done a lot of somethings in your life. And we need to be willing to have those conversations and bring it up and talk about it. Last thing, I want us to get out of the mindset that, oh, well, if I'm sharing my story, then that's got to lead to someone coming to Jesus right then. We're just a part. He wants you to share your story. It's because he's doing other things in their life to prep them for that moment. And your story plays a part in what will become their story. But it doesn't always happen in one way, one interaction, or even one explanation. The kingdom is a family. And so we approach these conversations from the perspective of relationship, ongoing, not a presentation, not an air raid where we drop something and then we leave, but an ongoing conversation where we walk with people. It's not about our ability, it's about our availability and our vulnerability. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. It's only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor, for we are co-workers in God's service. So when we're talking about asking questions, listening to answers, carrying on conversations that lead to discussions about the kingdom, we're talking about just playing a part, just being faithful to do what God has put right in front of us, to just be faithful to talk to someone. We don't have to close the deal 
with one conversation. We actually, we don't get to close the deal at all. That's God. That's God. We just plant or we water and then we wait. And later on, we may know what God did. We may not, but we've got to be okay with that. We've got to recognize that God is writing stories in us to bless people who are in need. 